welcome to the Open Div Podcast, a series of conversations around spirituality and meaning making in the modern world. I'm Daniel Lev Shkolnik, and I'll be your host for season one, Rewilding, in which we explore nature-based rites, initiations, and spiritual practices that are accessible and authentic to a modern audience. For more on Open Div, you can visit us at opendiv.org. Hello, Nadia, and welcome to the Open Div podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a real honor. You are a recent graduate of the Harvard Divinity School uh, mm-hmm. with a master's in theological studies degree, and you are going to be starting a PhD in uh, UT Austin. Congratulations. Where you're going to continue your work on spiritual reparations. Yes. Um, I imagine in uh, your relating to your own tradition, Regla de Ocha Ifa, yep. uh, and other Black Caribbean traditions as well, most likely. Mm-hmm. And this tradition, Regla de, de Ocha Ifa, Ocha, Ocha for short, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you're a high priestess in this tradition, which is a Yalocha, is that right? Yalocha. Mm-hmm. Yalocha. And you're also a dancer yes. <laughs> with a Haitian dance company. So I guess by way of just introduction, and how did you find yourself dancing and being a high priestess in this tradition? How did you end up being you? I mean, just to start off, being a dancer and being in the religion is all not that like special just to me. Because when, one of the forms of prayers that we regard as praying, right? and being in community and ritualizing and being in practice is dancing. Yeah, so there's a lot of dancers. I know I've done like quote unquote proper training through academia, um, but yeah, everyone's dancing. But, you know, I started my my journey with dance in a colonial lens. It would be that I started late, right? Because I started professionally training at 13 years old, seriously, meaning I was, you know, I attended Boston Arts Academy, which is a public school for the visual performing arts. And yeah, I, I was regarded as someone who had to really catch up. So that's, that was most of my teen years is really catching up, you know, taking extra courses, being in honors class, doing summer dance intensives, and really trying to be on par with everyone. Um, <laughs> but um, it worked because dance is, is a way in which I can access and share liberatory feelings. And, and, and liberation and, and healing. But the way that I got into practicing Regla de Ochaifa was very natural as how one feels drawn to going to the beach one day or how one feels drawn to taking a hike and stopping at the river, right? Um, because as you said, Regla de Ochaifa is a you know, nature-based tradition. We're all surrounded by nature. We, we are in contact with nature. You know, orichas, the deities of Reina de Ochaipa, doesn't belong to any just one person. Um, and it really debunks the whole perception that nature is for white people. It's, it's really for all people. And it's it's a really sacred and Black, very multiverse world, actually. I'm curious about that. Is, yeah. is, is that a perception that nature is for white people? Oh, yeah. I mean, like the tree huggers, the hiking, the Merrill shoes, the, you know, the Solomons. I mean, I think I think popular social discourse regards they proximate white bodies to nature. It is just that. And when it is um, an association between black and brown folks and indigenous folks to the earth, 
and much more when it comes to African derived or indigenous spiritual religious practices and them being in nature, it's almost conspiratorial and pagan, right? And this derogatory word and connotation, or, you know, there's a lot of blame for different like environmental crisis that's placed on black and brown people. So for example, in Cuba, if a palm tree was burnt down, there has been reports of people saying, you know, it's those people who practice Reina de Ochaifa with those offerings and candles. They did it. But it could have been just like happenstance or kids playing with a match. Mm. But anytime there's like anything having to do with my people and nature seems almost like um, a blame game and something that's of a violent type of interpersonal relationship between people, practice and nature. And that's not the case at all. So to give people a little bit of context about Regla de Ocho Ifa, where does it sit in the Afro-Cuban traditions? And you, you mentioned that most people actually know about this tradition, but by a different name. <laughs> Can you speak a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So, I mean, Regla de Ocho Ifa is the term that I use as a practitioner and as a scholar. I think it's, it's more respectful. It, it situates itself in the African lineage. But a lot of people know Rela de Ochaifa by the word Santeria or Santeria, which is the Hollywood <laughs> way of just putting Santeria on just anything basically Afro diasporic. But I don't like Santeria because it has such a connotation with Catholicism. I mean, Rela de Ochaifa, we'll get into it, has that. But it's solely that and it's very colonial and it really disrupts honoring that legacy. So I use either... Regla de Ochaifa, which means rule of the saint. Um, and then Ifa is another practice within that, or Ocha, or Lukumi. Lukumi means friend in Yoruba. And it was the Lukumi people who really held this Yoruba religion. So Regla de Ochaifa um, comes from the Yoruba religion from present day Nigeria, Benin. So when it was Yoruba land, they had Yoruba religion. Through the transatlantic slave trade, it has manifested, the Yoruba religion has manifested in Cuba, in Brazil, yeah, in Trinidad and Tobago. Now you can see it much more in Venezuela and Mexico, and now in the U.S. because of migration. But um, yeah, so the, the Yoruba religion in Cuba is very Cuban. The Yoruba religion in Brazil is very Brazilian. So although the Orichas are similar and the same, they can vary in ritual practices and ceremonies change. So for example, my initiation to become a major priestess, that way I can initiate others. I reach the top. I could be someone's godparent, right? And lead others and guide others. That took me one week to, so I was secluded in a room, right? And it's one week full of ceremonies that you have to go through. And then I was a yawo, which means newborn or bride to the oricha. I was a yawo for one year and seven days. But in Brazil, it's a seven-year cycle to even earn that title. So there are some major differences between the Yoruba religion in Brazil, which is called Candomblé, and then it's Reladocha in Cuba, and then in Trinidad, Tobago is called Shango or Shango Baptist. Mm. Or Trinidad Orisha too. So yeah, 
very much in the very Cuban way of looking at the Yoruba religion. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you. Yeah. So you mentioned, I, I want to get to the uh, the connection with nature in a, in a bit, but you mentioned the, the process by which you became, you know, a high priestess in this tradition, that it, it's full of initiation, it's full of ritual. Could you speak a little bit more about what does that mean for, mm-hmm. for people who maybe have never, you know, have <laughs> ideas about, about this in a Hollywood sense uh, or but right. have never really seen it or experienced it? Yeah, Gotta love Hollywood, um, and especially the particular damage that Hollywood does to Voodoo from Haiti is absolutely um, like they do some of the research, but then they like ignore it. <laughs> so like the Chucky movies and uh, love, I mean, yeah, American whatever horror story, all these things they do a little bit of research and then they just veer off. But you know, without saying too much, because I can't, right? It's uh, I don't want to say it's a secretive religion because that has an interesting, I don't like that connotation, but it's a it's a oral tradition, and you have to initiate in certain points to actually see and know. There are some ceremonies I haven't I haven't gone through that I can't even ask about, although I'm a high priestess, because until I go through them, I won't have the privilege of knowing. What are they reciting? What do we have to do? On what time? Am I kneeling here? Like, I'll, I'll never know until I go through it. But what Hollywood or mainstream media doesn't show is the love, the unconditional love, how everything is done in community. So when there's an initiation or ceremony, there's a lot of food. There's a lot of food that happens, not just for us, but to the deities too, to Orichas, um, who represent different ecologies of the natural world but they have their food they get to eat they get to drink their special drinks we do too there's a lot of music beautiful drums that are consecrated there are steps for each of each other and there's studies there's herbs that we work with there's baths that we work with i think people fixate on the fact that we do utilize animal sacrifice and that's the one that gets the most heat and that's a lot of the cases that we see in court is the is PETA coming down on saying this is inhumane, but they don't see that we actually really do take care of the animals and we clean them and we pray over them. And after it is sacrificed, every bit of that animal is used. Meaning everyone here, oh we have a speaking, speaking about animals, uh, <laughs> my yeah, my my our dog just barged in. <laughs> I love it. And, you know, dogs have to do a lot with San Lazaro or Babaluaye, which is an oricha who represents all the sicknesses of the world. He's a very like miraculous oricha. And anytime I'm getting followed by a dog, I'm like, okay, <laughs> Babaluaye, great. <laughs> so, so I cheer to that. I love that, that that happened. But yeah, they, they don't show like the fact that after we perform the sacrifice with chanting and love, that we use every bit. So we eat it, we cook it, the orichas eat it as sacrifices and we give it out to the community, to the neighborhood. Um, and that's awesome, precious meat, but it's not just going to waste. So yeah, I think that, you know, the longstanding colonial perspective is that it's dark and it's vicious and it's deadly and it's ruthless and it's without heart, but it's actually all of the opposite. And not every ceremony means animal sacrifice or certain is not just all animals. I think they takes understanding that, okay, these deities eat 
Like they're not just like an altar or they're not just in a spiritual realm over there. They're actually very proximate to us. They're very much present and we need to give them food. They are hungry. <laughs> and I think that people need to reconceptualize that humanity and agency and ontology of a deity to be able to really participate in our lives in a very real way and for us to give them food and for them to really show their happiness. I mean, it really is this give and take and taking care. I mean, you wouldn't invite someone to your house and not offer them some kind of food or, or snack or a drink. And I think that's just the same. It's like, you know, you give me blessings. So here's, here's some food. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a few things that strike me about that. I mean, for one, right, the very literalism of like, yeah, if, if somebody's coming to your house, like you've got food, you give them something. You give, it's not just words and prayers, it's something physical and tangible. And at the same time, like, you know, the, the notion of, of animal sacrifice, I mean, we're stepping into the connection with nature already. You know, animals are, are a part of the natural world, as are we, but having a relation to the natural world, to our food, to the to things that, that we eat in this sacred way, it's something that is completely foreign and alien to, to most people in the Western world today, where, yeah, like you have food that you get plastic wrapped, you know, in, in, in styrofoam, like that's been factory farmed. And uh, you can maybe do, you know, kind of pray over it uh, before you eat. Uh, but it's really just so many steps removed from the kind of the, the fur and the, 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 the blood and the, the, the creature, the, the natural thing that you could once look into its eyes and see, a, you know, a bit of life in there, recognize yourself in there. So it's, it's something that I think, honestly, is, is it sounds incredibly powerful on a deep level. It's a beautiful moment actually to, to spend that much time with that animal that's doing such a great service of giving their life so that you're, because we believe that in the blood there's ache and ache has multiple meanings. It could be like an affirmation, like an amen, like ache, ache, yes, ache. But it could, it also means like your collective power, right? Or, or blessings. And so we believe in their blood, they are giving life to us and they elevate their prayers. And it is so amazing that every single time, right before the moment of sacrifice, I mean, there's certain things you have to do in terms of carrying the orichas. I mean, I, I, carrying the animals and I can't say much, but there's, there's this like physical, like lovingness before it happens. And there's such a calm. I mean, the goat, right? We'll go from like kind of freaking out because, I mean, it's getting fed, it's in the patio, it's getting taken care of. And it's kind of freaking out like, oh man. But as soon as they come into the room of the ceremony, every single time, every animal I've seen has calmed down completely, has been silent. And I've seen them in their eyes and it was just a knowing, like we're in this together in such a love. And people don't know, but like Ocha, is very body intensive. There's a certain way we skin after sacrifice. There's a certain way we skin, there's a certain way we pluck and say certain things. I mean, it's all such an intentional process. And then getting it to people's plates and communities and families, it's all very intentional. There's there's no way to waste any of that precious life. And I guess um, 
connecting this to just the way in which Ocha is related to the natural world in general. I mean, I believe I was reading somewhere that there's the sense that in the river, in the mountain, in the in different parts of nature, you find, is that where the deities uh, live? Is I mean, speak a little bit more about that. So it's pretty, it, the orichas are beautiful because they literally hold multiple bodies and homes. So let's start just with like in the natural world. So yes, yeah, so you'll find Ochun is the river. Yamaya is the ocean, Agayu is volcano. Not only do they dwell there, like they preside there, they're, they're in residence there, but they also are the actual elements. So it's not just like you go to the beach and, okay, Yamaya's like here, cause she like lives here, but it's also like, how am I treating the ocean? Why is it dirty? Because this is her body. Like this is actually her, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it, it makes it even more intentional because it is their body. It is their dwelling it is that kind of double bodied experience of them. And then when you initiate, you know, they're, they're placed on people. It's not just like you receive some things, but you're, you, you have the Orisha seated in your head. But to think that you can have a deity seated and planted in your head, in your skull, right? Which is called the Ori. Ori is the top center of your head, which this is why we don't like touch the head at all. And um, it also means your consciousness. Mm-hmm. So they're placing your Ori. So it's not like I have to, for example, it's not like I have to go to the river to talk to Oshun. Mm-hmm. If I'm seated with Oshun, I could just, you know, I'm going to look pretty <laughs> interesting, but I, I will talk to myself because she's seated on my head. Mm. So that's that's the kind of proximity that we are dealing with with Orichas. They're, they're in at least your main Oricha. Everyone has two. So when you start an initiation, you always find out who your main one is. Am I a child of Oshun? Am I a child of Yamaya? Am I a child of Agayu in the volcano? But then when you go through the major initiation, which is called Cariocha Leri Ocha, or El Asiento de Santo, you find out who your mother or father is. Hmm. So I could be a child of Oshun and I know that. And then once I become, uh, I enter Cariocha Leri Ocha, I figure out, oh, Ogun, the warrior, the blacksmith, is my father. So you literally are de- are dealing with like a new form of kinship, a spiritual kinship, is that I have a mother. Everyone has a mother and father, Oricha, and they really do act as your parent. So they're, they're in proximity in terms of having them in your home and altars. And also, yes, finding them in the natural world, meaning is that it would mean that they dwell there and they are those elements. And they also have their respective trees and plants and flowers. Mm. So she was also sunflowers, right? Or Chango is fire and lightning, but he's also the palm tree. So they take on multiple bodies and they really, they really encompass our natural world. And it really, at the beginning of my journey, it really, really transformed even more so this deep regard I have with the natural world. It feels very magnetized. It feels like, yeah, like I am sharing space and always in relationship and none of this is mine. And some of this is my, my guide in love. So I'm curious about how was that transition 
you know, like what, how did you regard the natural world before that? And then how do you regard it afterwards? Yeah, for you personally, because I think this is a general question I have of like, how is it different in Regla mm. de Ocha Ifa versus, you know, um, not being in it, right? Not being in it. I think before I had been involved in. I mean, I, I grew up in the city in Boston. So for me to be in nature like that, it, it wasn't really common, unfortunately. And I didn't really travel much. I was really young when I went to like uh, Republica Dominicana with my with my family to be able to like, okay, be in the river and really like understanding it's so true. Not at all. I just remember, you know, happy times and family and such. But I think there was always a regard. I just was never fortunate to be so proximate. I think even more now, um, since Ocha, I'm observing, I'm seeing more. I'm not just walking through. I'm really stopping to see what's around me. I'm really listening. And I'm someone who loves to collect rocks <laughs> anywhere I go or whether it's the sea or anywhere else. But because ever since practicing Ocha, Ifa, I know not to take something and not leave something behind. Right. It's not this take, take, take relationship. I know that like if I feel drawn to the stick or this beautiful stone that I see or this beautiful leaf, that I'm going to leave three pennies or I'm going to leave I'm going to leave something for the oricha because it's a reciprocal relationship. So I think that's the major change is that I know not to give something of myself if I also resonate with something of the natural world that falls to me. And just, just being way more present as if like, like us right now, we're talking, we're being present, we're looking at each other. And that's how I feel now when I am in nature and walking through the woods or in the river or in the ocean. I'm just really in a presence and spending time rather than just being there. Yeah. And it reminds me of some of the the other conversations I've had in the course of this season with people that really describe um, relationships with the natural world, not just a kind of this is a, a biological natural machine that is being that is broken because we've broken it. We have to go fix it. It's much more like, a, oh, this is a part of my family, a part of my community. Uh, there is actual relationship, like human to, to more than human, but, but there's a human relationship there. Yeah. In our cosmological understanding and what my mother and I tells me is that the, like, the natural is going to be fine. <laughs> it's not about saving them. I think they're always going to be here. And once they're... <laughs> really tired of us they'll do away i mean like i think we underestimate their power and and their autonomy and it's not about saving i think it's just about love loving one another and through that they're saving and healing but like they don't need us <laughs> in in a way you know yeah, no, that, that reminds me of something a friend of mine told me. She was sitting with an indigenous teacher uh, and she said something very similar. It's like, yeah, the natural world is, is going to be around long after we are. It's like we are giving up our, our privilege and our right to to be here. <laughs> and <laughs> putting it in that context, it's um, it's like, oh, yeah. It, I mean, and it's true. I, I mean, you know, scientifically, like, you know, we know that the, the, the world yeah. is going to continue on. Like, uh, yeah. it'll life will find a way and it may be without us. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And like the Orichas were 
living people before. So when they transitioned, they were divinized. So they really represent a full aspect of humanity. I mean, the Orichas have gone through divorce, polygamy, monogamy, co-parenting, cheating. They've been through it all. So in my language, rather than saying like, maybe the spirit that's over there in this realm, they're simply in another multiverse. I think we're sharing kind of the same sphere of living. It's just like, it's pretty elevated and it's different. So for example, if, if someone passes away, people would say, oh, that person died, that person passed away. But in, in our cosmological understanding is that people don't ever die. People don't truly die. We believe in reincarnation and we believe rather it's a transition of their living. It's not that they just left here and their spirit just kind of ended and that legacy ended, is that it continues. So I rather say like they transitioned into being an ancestor and being an ancestor is a lot of work. It's a lot of work to like guide your descendants and people living on earth on what to do. But it really is a transition. So the Orichas themselves were real people transitioned into becoming Orichas, but still human, you know? Yeah. So I wonder with the way in which you and and this tradition relates to the natural world, are there points of like miscommunication or tension or when it comes to speaking to people who maybe don't engage with the world in this way? Yes. There are so many miscommunications and tensions and violences. We would all benefit just from talking to each other and just talking it out. Right. Because Cosmology means just how someone constitutes themselves in the world, right? How they situate themselves in the world, what morals and values they are guided by. It's it's the way that they live day to day. I think, you know, this is a tradition that's not just for Sunday, right? Like, Like Abrahamic. But this is an everyday, second by second Tradition that informs how you wake up, how you walk down the, the stairs, literally how you eat, how fast you eat, <laughs> how you talk to your loved ones, how you don't swear, how you like it, it, it informs very particularly each person how they should live so that they are the most balanced. Right. Mm-hmm. According to what their destiny is and what they're already doing. Um, but there is a lot of miscommunication. There's our, there's a lot of miscommunication within the tradition. Cuba is raging with machismo, right? The cis-heteropatriarchy is real. So sometimes there is, you know, manipulation of the tradition itself, right? Of different oracles and divination and a lot of terrible things happen. But I think at large, there is a lot of religious racism that African-derived traditions face. And yeah, I mean, the it's Afrophobic. It's rooted in Afrophobia. And again, it really does try to rip apart black and brown folks, indigenous folks from nature-based traditions and nature. But yeah, tons of miscommunication regarding animal sacrifice. Why are we littering the street? It's like, that's my offering under a palm tree. Or I have to leave my offering in the corner of the street. Yeah, so there's this whole (laughs) debate. And I feel like environmentalists, folks who practice Abrahamic traditions and African-derived indigenous folks can really like, there's a lot to address there, um, but I think everybody needs to call in because the central point is caring and devoteness to something. But until folks actually talk to those who practice and witness what they can witness, they're not going to understand. And people just need to understand that their way of living is not the only one. 
And so a lot of the blame of like cutting down of Seba trees, there's no way an Ochak practitioner could be blamed for that. They are. There's no way because the Seba tree is very sacred. All trees are. But the Seba tree is the dwelling of los espíritus, the spirits, meaning ancestors, spirits that guide us. And the canopy of a, is a Seba tree is where they sit. Mm. So we would have to ask permission with orichas and that particular Seba tree to say, may we cut you down. And, and it's not even granted all the time. Like there's certain prayers and ceremonies and different priests that have to come in to like even see that's a, a permission that's granted. There is no <laughs> way that um, practitioners of Ocha and other African drive traditions could be a blame of say an arson or a bulldozing land. Rather that's happening to temples of ours that they're privatizing our lands, they're bulldozing our temple land, they're bombing, and this is mostly Brazil, they're bombing, um, they're arson, they're stoning, they're doing graffiti, they're killing religious leaders, they're hitting people with Bibles, they're defacing monuments of orichas. I mean, the list sadly goes on, and it it goes into, you know, kids in their religious square and, and educational settings. I was going to ask is like, what are some examples of religious racism? But it sounds like you just gave a long list. You said earlier that you also are interested in studying spiritual reparations. What is that in this context? What does that look like? So religious racism is a term coined by Afro-Brazilian activists. So that's one. And it's something that I've utilized in my work because it is just that. And a lot of people would say, Instead of religious racism, they would say religious intolerance. But I think it's much deeper than just an intolerance. Because once it is enacting and physical and spiritual and head on, I don't think it's just merely, I don't respect it or I don't tolerate it. It really is this active force to to dampen it and to distinguish it. And it's, it's such a plantation logic that has continued and it's only getting worse um, and it's burgeoning in Cuba which is terrible. But for me, spiritual reparations is my concepts in which I'm developing and seeing how that really looks like in terms of how am I asking for that or how does one ask for that? But it's a form of reparations for me that I haven't seen that can directly tend to the deadly anti-Black violence towards African diasporic and derived spiritual religious traditions. So the way to contest the religious racism that's happening. And this is like throughout the Caribbean and the diaspora, um, sadly. (laughs) But like, how do we come to terms with the loss when profound like eco-religious and eco-political relations have been damaged, right? So there has to be a reparative model or process to deal with the spiritual because I could get land and money but my ancestors were still forced baptized and their religious names were removed from them. They could not practice Odicha or Yoruba religion or Vodou or Palo or anything, right? They had to face Catholicism or Christianity in a head-on way. So you think about like, this is, this is a damage from a long time ago and that intergenerational trauma continues. There, there's no coincidence that a lot of young black and brown indigenous folks are trying to go back to their indigenous tradition. A lot of people are going back to Orijas or finding Orijas. But yeah, I just feel like spiritual reparations 
needs to really, it would be the one that tends to the oppressive climates that Black people endure. Oppressive climates like physical, the emotional, the spiritual, religious, sexual, academic, psychological, physiological, and political. Um, and spiritual reparations would include cultivating our own climates and our own spaces where we are honored. And I also use the term colonial pollutants. When we think about pollution, I think about that in a colonial sense, right? So the colonial pollutants that affects our bodies, right? So not only is it ecological damage because agri-businesses, right? Or privatizing our land and trying to build a daycare, right? Or something like that, instead of leaving the site as a temple, really calls for a different kind of reparations and what that looks like. So I'm really in my work trying to call in also environmentalists because what I argue is that environmental crisis is a cultural crisis and vice versa. Because yeah. once, once we are displaced, once the ecologies are faced with violence and are burned or displaced, so are our sites of ritual. Where are we going to go to? Which palm tree are we going to go to? Which body of water that is clean are we going to go to? How are we going to do the river ceremony? Mm-hmm. Like, it, it is our livelihood. It, not only is it, this is the other thing that I argue is that Orich has faced displacement. Like, the, the, the ecology itself can face death mm. or displacement. It's not just people center and us that, oh, we don't have that one place we can go to because now it's privatized. It's more like, they did away with that oricha and the orichas can face death and multiple deaths. I mean, they don't die, but they face multiple endings of the place. There's no more seva trees here. There's an ending of Iroko, oricha Iroko. And so, yeah, it, there needs to be a reparation that directly ties to the spiritual, to people's spirits, you know? And, and again, that starts way, way back in, in chattel slavery. Yeah. If we're talking about corporations or government entities, yes. how equipped are they to really give uh, spiritual reparations? You know, would it have to come from another spiritual group that is capable of recognizing and, and doing, even interacting on that level? Mm. And this is the delving in that I'm tending to is what, what does that look like? Because for the surest thing is that like we do not have to try to turn to the institutions who are in turn enacting the violence to us. That, that's not the solution, is that we actually always recover. We have recoverability practices. We know how to, we know how to come back from it, right? And it's not this resilient or resistant narrative, right? Because resiliency could kind of like do away with, with applying accountability for those structures of violence. But on one side of the argument is that we are not going to look to or towards the institutions that are not going to help us or enacting them are part of the problem. But in terms of like public policy, like what does it actually look like? Cause it's pretty dire um, other than us healing ourselves and finding new land and rebuilding our temples and, and everything is, you know, purchases of new sacred materials. Like, so a lot of times what happened in Brazil is that a lot of evangelical Christian um, drug traffickers will like hold people at gunpoint and tell them, break all your, all your religious stuff. 
in the name of Jesus, may like break it all. And so I didn't even know that was a evangelical drug traffickers. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. It's, it's wow. So wow. it's just absolutely terrifying. It's absolutely like frightening. And so you have all your religious, I mean, cause we house the oritas in, in our, in our homes in like soup terrains, like in porcelain and, or in wood, certain things. So, you know, it's actual things that we receive. So you imagine breaking that, breaking all of your religious beads. I mean, it's, it's chilling. And so if we think about spiritual reparations in a way that does have to mobilize and call for institutions or systems of power outside of us is we want money for sacred materials again, because we have to go through these ceremonies again. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to go get the herbs and buy this animal and get this. And I have to get all my beads back. It's, it's a lot of money. So it's a lot of people. You have to pay people to be a part of that ceremonies covering medical and therapy expenses. I mean, people are hit and bashed. And like, it, we have to think about that covering reverse privatization of land that threatens and displaces the temples in Brazil, Paltaheiros, and a decrease of the building of new churches that are founded by ex-gang members. Because what they do is that they utilize the church as an institution of surveillance and of use of power. So a lot of times they'll get out of incarceration, they're still heavily involved in gang politics and activity. And what they will do is find a church, right? They're the pastor, they have all their people, their congregants. And what they'll do is they'll set curfews for that said neighborhood. Hmm. So they'll say, no, um, all the Tejeros, all the Afro-Brazilian Candomblé Oricha temples cannot um, do anything past five which is ridiculous because things are going to pass five and certain things have to be at 12 a.m. And so it really does limit, you know, there's that surveillance of curfews, of noise, and just of having eyes to look at the window of your church and know that there's a tejero right there and making sure that every day there's a new graffiti that says Jesus is everything or something like that. So it's quite, I mean, there are some real outside things outside of the community that could be done that is still something I'm tending to because it's just such a big ask. It's not just here's money and land boom. It's like, no, 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 no. I need to feel good. How are you going to repair my soul, my spirit? How are you going to address this intergenerational problem and, and trauma? And, you know, they have like hotlines in Brazil. There's nothing in place for Cuba, but they, you know, it's not enough. And it, investigations only go so far. And, and, and really like the agribusiness in, in Brazil is coming down on the Quilombo community outside. Um, and what happens that is there's a lot of falsification of documents. It's called Soheirus. So they'll like age a document to make it seem like, oh no, this is our land here and trying to displace those indigenous people, the Quilombos, which are descendants of folks who were enslaved. They freed themselves, they ran away and you know, created their own community, mm-hmm. like the Maroons or this. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of times there's falsification documents trying to overtake it, and it's all for the soy business. And everything is just wrapped up in everything. <laughs> they they even privatize certain land that has graves for Kilimbolas, and it's like wow. I can't even visit my family's grave. So it's it's all a mess, but it, it really does call in. My, my 
focuses calling in environmentalists and looking at land and looking at nature and space and private versus consecrated. Yeah, because I mean, what it seems like to me, it's just um, when you create and have such a intimate connection with the land that is literally a part of your, you know, your sacred practice, your, your worldview, when you have environmental destruction becomes, you know, spiritual destruction becomes, yes. you know, it's this, it's becomes the same thing. Yes. And, you know, you can't just pull up stakes, go somewhere else. Yeah. And I think that the hopeful thing is like, if more and more we become in tune with looking at the land as, as not just resources, not just like a machine that is working properly or not, but as these relationships, these deeper ties suddenly becomes much more just emotionally relevant to to keep things preserved to keep things not just literally flowering but also the kind of the whole fabric of the human connection with a certain tree or a certain body of water because then it's um as you say it's all it's all wrapped up together it's all one and the same exactly yeah i think once we understand that there's a solidarity there but the thing is, the threat is, is that these African-derived traditions, like Ochaifabudu, these are these are sites of revolution. I mean, you see the Haitian Revolution and how that is based in Wakaima, and a ceremony with a sacrifice with a pig. I mean, it 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 came with a spiritual religious ceremony that really, the people of Haiti said, we're going to free ourselves. There is a real threat that, you know, we have these spaces, we have these practices. They have too much liberation. They have too much peace. They have too much healing. They have too much answers and clarity. So, of course, anything to extinguish that is the goal. And, you know, before in, in undergrad, I wanted to so badly study environmental racism. But it, it wasn't, and I don't think it's still a thing, you know, by like major and real course and resources. But, you know, there's a way in which environmentalism and folks who are environmentalists can be very secular, but I think with this spiritual religious like understanding and grounding, whether you're non-religious, non-spiritual, there there is a way of that we can construct and build solidarity to do the same end goal, is to take care of our land, right? Because it's everyone's land. And and I think that that grounding can have a lot of answers. I mean, there there could be so many beautiful conversations between environmentalists and practitioners where we can get down to the root of divination oracles, looking at the, people will say folk tales, but looking at the sacred stories, the different stories of how the orichas live. So why is it that, you know, we have this relationship with honey or the way that the palm tree is like there, there's a, even they have sacred stories, animals, the trees, the plants, they have their own story of their living. They have their history. They have their autonomy. So it's even more so that like every Odisha also has their representative animal. So everything just becomes one in the same. And I think that there's just so much richness that we can come together and just understand without needing to practice, but like the tradition, you know, more properly, but a way in which we can set up, I don't know, I don't want to say solutions, but ways in which we can mend. Yeah. And it will tug at the emotional. 
Yeah, that's partly my hope in creating this season is, Mm -hmm. you know, for those who are listening that, you know, are of a more secular persuasion, recognizing that if we are able to create real relationships with land, with nature, then it becomes it becomes an emotional process. It doesn't become it, it takes it out of the realm of the intellect. Oh, I know I should be doing something for to protect the this this environment. Right. No, it's like humans are emotion based creatures. We are driven fundamentally by our feelings. And so making that connection is what will ultimately motivate us really on a you know it'll raise us up out of our out of complacency to actually get up and, and do something and, and we're so well accompanied I, I think that's the other part is that it's not just us and the world is like we're actually really accompanied and they're here for us and I think that people are people a lot of people could be already emotionally tied to nature and not know it right so people are like oh my happy place is the beach like that's an emotional tie like you actually feel calm and centered when you go to the beach you call it your happy place but it really is like yeah my ass accompanying you and offering you that love right she's a she's a mother that's how mother oricha is given birth many times of course you feel calm right or if people cry often at the river they love their river that they go walk to and they cry that is in relation whether people feel like they have to do something or join a coalition or or protest at the front lines already having a love and knowing is the work. Mm-hmm. Like, that, that is it. And the more that that happens, the more a lot of things will change, right? I think it's a lot of like, I have to do something. Pick up that one trash you see and like, you know, really be present with Yamaya, offer her a white flower. That is the work. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, like there's so much, again, they're good. Norishas are good. The natural world is good. It's just about supporting them in it and making sure we are really seeing them and witnessing them. You know, nobody likes to not feel not seen. <laughs> especially like especially if you're talking to someone but they're not really looking and distracted and talking about it's, it's like that. That's like what we're doing with nature right now or like what a lot of corporations and terrible <laughs> systems that are that's really violating this earth is that it's like a conversation but it's like you're never looking in the not eye really there and not you're not there you're, you're fidgeting like you're just you're just not right there with love and you don't care about that person it's it's that well nadia Thank you so much for, for taking the time and showing us a little bit about this tradition and your relation to it. Absolutely. My honor. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Thank you for listening to the Open Div podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to hear more, you can visit us at opendiv.org, where you'll find over 70 other conversations with thought leaders, academics, and practitioners about the future of spirituality and meaning making. You can also sign up for our email list to hear about upcoming classes, podcast releases, and other fantastic offerings. Again, I'm Daniel Levshkolnik, and as the host of this season, I want to extend special thanks to all our guests for sharing their wisdom, to Casey Rosengren for helping produce this season, and for Engin Hassan for editing and sound design. If you like this episode, please rate it or share it with a friend. Thank you again for joining us. This is The Open Div Project.